Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Uh, first up this week, let us talk about Labour and splits. The cover story in the magazine this week is asking a very simple question, should Labour split? And we've heard from Neil Kinnock, uh, Lord Owen, David Owen. You've interviewed Bill Rogers, another member of the Gang of Four. Well, actually, let's maybe start there, Stephen, because you to, to put it in the context of the Limehurst Declaration. For, for those, Let's just imagine we're not all experts on the Limehurst Declaration. So 35 years ago this week, four uh, former secretaries of state in the... Wilson Callaghan uh, Labour government uh, issued the Limehouse Declaration, which they basically went, the Labour Party, as it currently exists, is headed for the wrecking yard. We need a new force for social democratic politics, and we're looking to, we're, we're going to work out how that will happen. And the end result of that was them setting up the Social Democratic Party, which took uh, about a third of Labour activists uh, 10% of activists who were from the Tory party, who were disgruntled by Margaret Thatcher, and then the rest were new to politics, and 30, and, and counted 30 MPs among its defectors, one Conservative, 29 Labour. But I think that's what's really interesting, because I think that is, in the same way that Iraq hangs over our discussions of, of Syria and other kind of foreign interventions, that split hangs over this discussion about Labour's future, because those the vast majority of those MPs lost their seats next time around, and they end up with, in the 1983 election, what was six? Yeah, the SDP got six MPs. Even though they were only a couple of percentage points behind the Labour yeah, Party. Yeah, so the, they, they formed an alliance with the, what was then the Liberal Party, and they finished two percentage points behind Labour, but they had a lot of wasted votes. Um, they didn't, as is commonly believed... Uh, Changed the outcome of the election. SDP voters were equally likely to come from either party, and mm. and the areas they were strong were the same areas the Lib Dems were strong in until uh, the Lib Dems' crushing defeat in May. Uh, and um, the slightly sad thing about the SDP is they didn't really change the politics of the eighties at all. Their major contribution is they destroyed a lot of promising careers. Bill Rogers, who you know. Is was seen as the least impressive member of the gang of four, but was you know a big beast and a heavyweight with a. He was secretary of state for transport, yeah. so he'd held cabinet positions. Yeah. I think that's a really fascinating thing. So, I mean, you know, spoiler alert to what people came back with. They mostly came back with the idea that no, uh, both from different sides. So, so Diana, I know, told you over the phone. You know, sort of, you know. What was this? Uh, she had a great. She quoted Shirley Williams saying, "You know, such a party w would have no heart and no soul," yeah. and said, "You know, she was right the first time." So both from the kind of Corbyn supporters and also from the whatever we want to call them, the soft left, the Blairites, the Labour right, whatever term we're using this week. I think I finally found a phrase which which doesn't irritate too many people in the Labour Party, uh -huh. which is you refer to them as the left and the centre left. You get some people who go like, "Yeah, not on 
the centre-left, they're all Tories, but they are a tiny, tiny minority. And that way you don't annoy the people who think of themselves as being on the centre-left, but you don't annoy the people on the left by saying, oh, they're the radical left, the hard left, the non-soft left. And that, that seems to be in copy the phrase which doesn't annoy anyone in the Labour Party wow. as much as Okay, well, if you found the answer to that, I really think we should make you the next Middle East peace envoy, because that has been troubling a lot of people for a, for a long time. But, um, yeah, but the, the answer comes back very strongly that, you know, the Labour brand is, is still really strong. And, you know, Caroline Lucas references the fact that under First Past the Post, you are just completely stuffed, as, you know, the Green Party can tell you, as UKIP can certainly tell you, that, uh, you know, we have now so much pressure towards a, a two-party system. But, nonetheless, is that... is sh- I mean... Okay, putting aside the electoral system, is the Labour Party in a meaningful way still one party? That's the question. I think we probably all accept they're not going to split, but are the are is there enough common ground between the left and the centre left that they can come to an accommodation that and, and not tear themselves apart in a civil war for the next five years? Yes. Uh, So I uh, regularly speak to uh, uh, local Labour parties and Labour clubs, and if you're listening and you'd like me to come, please do drop me an email. Uh, I really enjoy it, but the thing you really notice is that in some of the big urban seats where the party memberships are very large, they feel more like two parties. But in most local Labour parties, they might disagree about politics, but they're still too small to to start being like, oh no, we don't want so-and-so. Because they need people to, you know, come to their fundraisers, to work the photocopier, to deliver the leaflets. In the country, it is still one party. And most of the party activists, and actually most of the MPs now, have this sense that even if they are worried about what will happen if and when Jeremy Corbyn meets the electorate in 2020, then they feel he needs to be deserved a fairer crack of the whip as he's had so far. So I think that they then actually they, they can live together better than people think. Don't you think that there is a London problem in the Labour Party? I think of all the different kind of splits that you, you, you could talk about, the London, non-London one, because London politics is just, is it's where, I guess, I don't want to say it's where rich people are left-wing, but, you know, the fact that in Hampstead people voted for the mansion tax, you know, people who were likely to be affected by the mansion tax voted for the mansion tax. I think that's... a an interesting dynamic you wouldn't find and I know John Mann who's the MP for Bassett Law yeah. gets very exercised about this and we you know Anoush um, has written a piece about the, the new members who are joining and whether or not they are as everybody keeps saying you know they are overwhelmingly middle class and there is some evidence for the fact that Labour is piling up more middle class yeah. activists but taking into account the fact that being a party member is already quite a good predictor of being middle class yeah i mean so in some ways you know one mp has a really good line the thing about jeremy is he's made us more like ourselves so the labor party was already quite london dominated already quite uh kind of a uh, middle class but in a kind of because basically the labor party's coalition in most elections because let's not forget labor has lost significantly more elections than it has won in the last 100 years. It's only because uh, most uh, political journalists and most people who listen to this podcast have grown up in the era of new mm. Labour than we forget that actually Labour government is very much not the default setting. Um, Labour Labour's coalition is the poor and people who are concerned about the condition of the poor. And most people who join the Labour Party are people who are concerned about the condition of the poor. Obviously, if you don't have very much money, giving 45 quid to the Labour Party is quite a big... Yeah. Uh, financial commitment. Uh, but, but one of the things the I thought was interesting when I think it was Tim Bale had uh, had some research about the ABC one, which is the generally the kind of top social grouping uh, percentage of members for each political party, and it found that you know the SNP are as you would expect quite ABC one. The Tories are very ABC one. Um, 
yes, Labour are reasonably... And, and the people who really aren't are UKIP. Like UKIP has a much lower ABC1 membership than anyone else. And I think that's why they're an interesting force. I mean, you don't you don't hear so much about them these days, um, particularly with the ongoing bun fight over the Leave EU campaign. But they do represent a group who aren't, you know, who aren't being... Who, who, this is the idea that Rob Ford and Matthew Goodwin have about the left behind, right? Yeah. They do represent a, a distinct group of people in British politics. Yeah, and, and the, uh, I mean, the, the growing cleavage in... European and indeed all sort of, uh, I don't know, what's the word, uh, in all Western democracies is uh, graduates and non-graduates. Um, so there is one stat which a lot of not very informed uh, commentators have started using, which suggests that Labour members who voted for Corbyn are not uh, that well off because it ignores the age differential. A lot of people in the Labour Party are dispossessed graduates who can't get on the housing ladder, who are in... Uh, insecure work um but also presumably people in their 60s you know grew up in a generation where far 10 percent of people went to higher education yeah. so it's, it's very hard to compare them with today's cohort of yeah yeah the, the, it's one of those things where it's kind of in some ways it's not really a and in an interesting way what's sort of happening to labor under corbyn is kind of what happened to the democrats in the the american democrats in the 70s where they went from being a party of organized labor to a party of dispossessed urbanites and if Labour has a future in the 21st century, it probably does have to become a party of dispossessed urbanites. The difficulty is there's an interim stage where there aren't enough members of either of those two coalitions for Labour to win, and you'd need a very skillful politician to hold those two groups together. And the, North, the London thing is a much bigger problem, because although Chakramuna and Jeremy Corbyn uh, might disagree about the role of the private sector, you know, Chakramuna is a social democrat, Jeremy Corbyn is a democratic socialist, yeah. So they have those slightly different traditions. On things like immigration, uh, they are as one. On things like social security, they are as one. Whereas MPs who are uh, on the left of the party and might have shared a lot of platforms with Jeremy in parts of the north, they want something which represents the concerns of their constituents, you know, so more punitive on welfare, close the borders on immigration, in some cases leave uh, the EU. And... Labour's basically maxed out the parliamentary seats it can win in London now. So as the membership asserts itself and sets policy more, it effectively you have this thing where you have a London core setting policy for a London core, which is probably much more damaging to Labour's chances of winning a general election than its left-right placement, which is always a bit of a red herring. That's good. So we found out that there is a split in Labour. It's just not the one that anyone thought. Yeah. That's like That's like the perfect... That's how basically every column I write ends. Yeah, there is a problem here, but it's not the one you think. Hashtag made yeah. you think. Um, well, we have made people think, so uh, yeah, let's leave it there. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. It's George on the line from the lobby. Hi, George. Hi, Helen. Tell me, you were in the chamber for Prime Minister's questions yesterday, and having I wasn't really kind of tuned into what was going on, and the phrase a bunch of migrants sounded to me mildly dismissive, but not as bad as some of the language you've heard before, you know, like swarms and stuff like that. But it seems to have caused a real kerfuffle at Westminster. Why? So I think you're right. Out of context, it doesn't seem as, as, as bad as it, as it did in the chamber. So David Cameron was under pressure from Jeremy Corbyn on the 
Google tax deal. And then he hit back with an attack that was clearly prescripted. He said yeah, he went to see trade unionists and offered them flying pickets. Uh, they'd go to the Argentinians and offer them the Falklands. And then they went to Calais with a bunch of migrants and said they could all come to Britain. And that prompted cries of outrage on, on the Labour benches. So this is referring to Jeremy Corbyn's visit to the so-called jungle camp in Calais, which he went to about a week ago, right? And yes. then he immediately kind of put out a statement afterwards saying that there's only 2,000 odd people there with Britain could easily accommodate all of them. I think what's kind of interesting about this is that, I mean, you wrote a blog saying this is what we call a, a dead cat strategy, which I think is a phrase popularised by Linton Crosby, the ele- election guru, that when, you know, things are going really badly, you throw a dead cat on the table. You you do something that is, quote-unquote, outrageous, and everybody talks about that. And you might get some negative publicity, but, you know, everyone stops talking about the thing that they were talking about before, which in this case was Google. I think what was interesting is you, you saying the trouble is that, you know, for a lot of people will agree with David mm. Cameron. Yes, they will. So there were some commentators at Westminster who described it as an own goal by Cameron. I don't think it was. I think it was, in his terms, in conservative terms, a goal. Because talking about immigration, where their stance on, on the refugee issue is far closer to that of uh, the public than Jeremy Corbyn's, is much more comfortable than the Google tax deal, where actually quite a lot of the public would sympathise with Corbyn's position. Essentially, why are they paying so little tax? I'm kind of interested in the Google tax deal because to me, so tell me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, it was kind of announced by George Osborne on Twitter and through various channels last week as a kind of like, well, come on everybody, like I've got Google to pay up 130 million over five years. Hurrah for me. I just don't know why you would do that in January, which is the time at which everybody who is a freelance or self-employed submits their tax return and has to pay a tax bill because it's just asking people to go, well, maybe I'll submit to the HMRC and I'll offer to pay 5% of everything I've earned for the last four, five years. Where is Where was George Osborne's fabled, alleged, you know, master planning here? This was a clear misstep by Osborne, and, and he does make them, of course, um, most memorably with the, the Omni Shambles budget. Mm. And it's, it's one of those instances where perhaps to government ministers who are thinking about this in terms of, say, well, it's more than Labour managed to collect from Google, it might seem like a, a success. But to the public, obviously, it seems a trivial, almost, almost insulting amount. But what's interesting is that on this issue, um, there's been a wedge between Cameron and Osborne. So as you say, Osborne tweeted hailing it as a major success. Uh, a few days later in the, in the number 10 briefing, the, the prime minister spokesman said, well, you know, this is obviously welcome, but there's much more that needs to be done. And this is hopefully just, just the start, presenting it much more modestly. And it's very rare that you have David Cameron and, and, and George Osborne on, on, on different pages, um, given how close they are and given how intertwined their political fortunes are. And that's something that Corbyn was managing to exploit quite well at PMQs. Um, and Labour and the SNP have gone in kind of, they've decided to go in on the attack on this one, haven't they? They have. And I mean, these are exactly the kind of issues which Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell should be focusing on because they can build unity in their party on them and also they're ones where they're on the same side as as the public unlike say uh nuclear disarmament or, or, or the falkland islands and the same side as rupert murdoch so indeed would... uh it'd be almost beyond parody to have rupert murdoch tweeting complaining about uh lobbyists <laughs> and uh secret or, or dubious tax arrangements um on the other hand you could say well he he knows uh 
he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he, think- know, he knows that he knows a, uh, a, a sort of a, a, a fix or rum deal when he when he sees one. I thought it was a kind of good alien versus predator moment. That really, you kind of think, yeah, okay, yeah, you're you're the person probably to make this. But I think it's really interesting that he would make that. I mean, he's been upset about Google for a really long time because you know the Times newspaper strategy of having a paywall. There was a you know, question about whether or not Google could even sort of see any you know any they were going to even be listed at all. So clearly, he's had a bee in his bonnet. Maybe this is the beginning of the great. Jeremy Corbyn, Rupert Murdoch, rapprochement. <laughs> um, but I probably wouldn't hold my breath for that. Thank you, George. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And welcome to our new feature, You Ask Us. Um, So this is an opportunity for you to email us in and uh, ask us questions that we can then tackle on next week's podcast. Uh, this week, I was being very rude about Ladbrokes' odds for the next Labour leader. They have Hillary Benn as the uh, favourite, and I said that you might as well burn your money. Uh, <laughs> and Ladbrokes not unreasonably said, okay, mate, if you're so smart, who would you bet on? Uh-huh. Um, so I, I'm going to cheat and do two. And then I think the, the good way to double your money, as it were, is to bet on Jeremy Corbyn to lead Labour in the 2020 election. And if not, to bet on John McDonnell as the next Labour leader. Ooh. Because if, if uh, basically, I think if, if Jeremy Corbyn doesn't lead Labour until the 2020 election, it will be because he gets ill. It's or, his yeah, gift, it, Yeah, basically. it will be in his gift. And if you look at what happened in the most recent reshuffle, uh, none of the young generation on the left of the party have been promoted. You, know, you can't tell, is, is Clive Lewis in a more senior position than Richard Bergen? You know, who, which one of them is the candidate? Yeah, okay. John McDonnell is very much still top man. So he's your, he's your Gordon Brown to Corbyn's Tony Blair. Yeah. That's a sentence that no one has said yet. I would, and I don't think I'm right here, but this is my, let me show my working. I would bet on Lisa Nandy because I think that the next candidate has to be somebody who is Corbynish because that's where the membership is now, but kind of acceptable to the other side of the party. So I think, you know, if you're... Dan Jarvis, who voted for airstrikes in Syria, you know, who's I imagine wants to renew Trident. I think you've got a thumping great problem with where the membership is now. Um, you know, if you're Tom Watson, who's been very, very low profile, I think you've got a you've got a problem because you're you know, you're sort of you're sort of associated with the being on the wrong side of history, I guess. Really, so you need somebody who is is seen to be you know Corbyn in adjacent, but also can can get enough, you know, MPs votes as well. So that, that that of the people who I can currently think of, she would get my Oh yeah, I think if there's a twenty twenty election she's 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 uh, I mean I, I think there will be I so if yeah. I kind of yeah. see her as the kinnock to his foot, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It's the direction of travel. Yeah, and I think um the mistake a lot of people on the right of the Labour Party are making is this idea that uh then people will go, oh, that was awful. Oh, they think there's going to be a massive swing back, don't yeah. they? They think we'll, that there'll be a crushing defeat for Corbyn and everyone go, well, we've, you know, well done the left, you've had your go. Mm-hmm. Now it's time for, like, find me the greatest Blairite of them all. And that's just not, I just don't see that happening. Because I think there will be so, if if 
as I, you know, as the poll suggests that there is a not a great result for Labour in 2020. There, you know, you can say it's the evil media what done it. You can say it's the PLP that never got behind him. I don't can't see a way that it, you know, that there would ever be a situation in which some people would say we've tried these policies and that it turns out that people hate the policies. Yeah, people. Well, it's just like uh, the voters' general acceptance of austerity. People want to feel that what they've gone through has been worthwhile. Um, it's why people aren't receptive to this idea that the cuts were economically meaningless. Because then you're just saying to people, "Well, all those sacrifices you made were for nothing," and uh, and the the you know, and I think Labour members will also, if things don't work out in 2020, will want someone who is kind of saying, "Well, look, we can build on this," not take the option you could have taken five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, you were wrong and accept it and have it rubbed in your face. Yeah. And look who has... I was going to say apparated, and then I remember that's Harry Potter. Um, look who has arrived in their blue box into the podcasting room. It is John Ellidge who has come to join me and Stephen to talk about Doctor Who's new showrunner, Chris Chibnall. Hello. So, John, okay, let's first of all, let's lay this on the line. Stephen Moffat has presided over a shall we say controversial tenure as a showrunner I think um, he suffered from incredibly high expectations because everybody loved the episodes that he wrote under Russell T Davis's era right so that's the first thing to kind of say he has it is a hard act to follow but a kind of controversial act to follow I think it's been difficult in a number of ways firstly it's not the sort of shiny new thing anymore um, so you know who you know Russell T Davis brought a show that everyone thought was a bit sort of tacky and rubbish back and made it a sort of massive TV phenomenon. Whoever came after him was going to find it difficult. But also Russell T uh, Davis had a great story to tell about his Doctor Who, right? His Doctor Who was kind of amazingly progressive Doctor Who, right? It had great roles for gay no, this characters. Is the, no, this and, is this is the narrative that's become set, and yeah. I think he talked a good game. There are weird things about. Just, just look at the way it treats Asian characters who tend to die horribly far more often than you would expect. And that's not just in Doctor Who. That happens in Davis's other work. Um, I don't think he's secretly racist against Asians or anything, but I'm saying you can see an alternative narrative in which this was the thing that got picked up on. Oh, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's wasn't. very much what he sold it as. You know, he was the guy who wrote Queer as Folk, so it was always being sold as a kind of... I, yeah, I, there was I, also I, an element, I think, that with... Um, and I think this is a big split in Doctor Who writers in the... What made Russell T. Davis's era strong is he was very invested in the companions. And for a lot of fans who are only fans of the new series, I think they they saw the Doctor through Rose's eyes mm. and they identified very strongly with her. And then, I mean, Martha was less impressed, but they saw... And, and the same with Donna. Whereas Steve Moffat is firmly in that tradition of Doctor Who writers who regard the companion as someone for whom the Doctor can explain the plot. I mean, not quite at the level of... So Tom Baker once suggested he should just have as his companion a talking cabbage, which would sit on his shoulder, and he would simply turn and exp- and yeah, and, and deliver exposition to it. I think he was actually subtweeting Lala, Lala Ward there, to be honest. Can we just take a moment to say that Lala Ward... The Venn diagram of men that Lala Ward is attracted to is Tom Baker and Richard Dawkins, which is one at Wi-Fi. One of the raises more, questions, doesn't more, it? More inexplicable things. Um, but but yeah. I, I think there is a difference in writing styles between the two. Men. I think basically Russell T. Davis is always writing soap, which kind of, you know, it means it's everyone's in their lives. You would get a lot of, sort of character development. Moffat is always writing sitcoms. So it's, you know, it's got that kind of sort of joke rhythm. Um, and it does mean that sometimes the, the minor characters get a bit underdeveloped. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I think that's fairly true. And I, I guess we should probably look forward maybe rather than back here. So Chris Chibnall, uh, has, he's written Who episodes before. He was a writer and then showrunner on Torchwood. 
about which I will not have any mean words spoken, John Ellidge. I, I just watched the trailer for the episode called Meat. That's all Don't I'm saying. Be mean there is, about there meat. is an episode called Meat in which they have to save a space sausage which makes hooting noises, no. <laughs> which has been kidnapped by some Welsh people. The thing is, I mean, and also, you can't take any science fiction series seriously when it's set in Cardiff. It just doesn't work. Oh, there goes the Welsh now after Stephen upset Scottish all Scottish people last week. Why, why, why is John Barrowman standing on top of that roof? Why? Why is he standing there looking moody? Please explain it to me. Because it's one of John Barrowman's two emotional settings which one which is kind of you know I, I, like children's presenter who swallowed his, in, or Ruth. his entire stash as in the middle of a police raid or you know attempted brood I just I still would love to have been in the meeting where they, they were just like so we've we've introduced this character in Doctor Who as effectively a great amazing bisexual action hero yeah. played by a pantomime star yeah Let's make him dark and moody. Let's make him angel. This yeah, is the premise, like, isn't it? Let's make him stand and look really sad about the fate of humanity. There's one episode where it's the premise is that and somehow he's ended up going back in time, being buried in a box but because he can't die. He's just woken up like got, like that and then suffocated again over and over again for 2,000 years. And at the end of it, he's still John Barrowman. And you just think, no, come on, that would drive you anyone. Ins-. I mean, that's the same problem with Rory waiting for 2,000 years. It would drive anyone insane. It would definitely, if you were trapped in a box constantly dying it would are definitely you saying that stories set in the doctor who universe do not necessarily have sort of a realistic approach to human I'm psychology that psychological drama is, is, I, is that your argument here but, but okay to defend the one about the space whale okay and i went and read the wikipedia page after having mentioned this to you you didn't you may, you found the link and watched the whole thing i, I did watch a bit of it yeah did, but, but there was a bit apparently where russell t davis pitched this as why doesn't it be amazing if we just had an episode about a space whale? And how much do you love the idea that, that there was someone the else in that... so going to hate us after my <laughs> comments in that accent. I think you'll find I'm kind of pretty much Welsh and therefore it's not cultural appropriation for me to do not Welsh. Not helping. Um, that everyone... Yeah, space whale. Space whale. And then there was a big meeting among the designers and actually one of the people involved in the show said of the production design, yes, it ended up looking a bit like a kebab. <laughs> But, but that's to, a, yeah, that's to a great talk back to, to the beginning of the conversation. I think one of the things that that you can see happening in in the later years of Russell T Davies's who work is that he becomes a bit untouchable. There's a sort of J.K. Rowling thing when no one wants to tell him that this idea is bad. So he goes around sort of talking about how wonderful this sort of minor character he's created is. And when they actually appear on screen, they're incredibly obnoxious and played by Michelle Ryan and it doesn't work. There was a, um, there was a, a, one of the other writers, I think from the 70s, oh, I'm going to say Christopher something, I can't remember his, his second name, who wrote in Doctor Who magazine that the problem with Rusty Davis was that he was a great first draft writer, but he was a first draft writer. So what he would do was he would write the brilliant first draft where you do, where you just throw great ideas and creativity on the page. And what he didn't do was then have time or the inclination to do the following seven drafts where you nail everything absolutely down. I think it was a time thing. I think it's just an incredibly... I mean, we're meant to be talking about the new show running. Mm. I think there is a problem with the concept of having one person responsible for this massive media empire in which they write and script edit and produce and have to be the kind of public face of the brand. There aren't actually many TV writers who are capable of and qualified for that. Well, they don't do it the way that the Americans do it, where you would have a showrunner and a writing team of like 20 people who all sit in a room together, right? Individual scripts go out, the idea goes out to somebody, and then they come back in and get rewritten by the head writer, which is a more 
intensive, less collaborative. You know, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders. And in the book that he wrote with um, Benjamin Cohen, he used to edit... Uh, Benjamin Cook. Yeah, who wrote yeah. a Doctor Who magazine editor for a while. You know, he talked about the incredible strain of writing both the series opener and the ender and then being a script editor. On, and, it, and that does drive people it's, mad as much as I being in a box. it's an absolutely ludicrous model. I don't quite see why they haven't taken the, sort of the change in staff at the top as the moment to change it and think, OK, maybe we need to do this differently. My suspicion is it's a budgetary thing because despite being one of the most expensive programs on British television by international standards Doctor Who is still made on a shoestring so I suspect it's just that they don't actually have um, the money to have that many senior people but it's I mean if you if you go back to the old series there used to be a producer and a script editor and between them they were kind of lead the the creative direction of the show whereas now they're kind of merged into this one figure and there are other senior producers around but nobody on the same level of seniority but also they do a new story pretty much 45 minute episode with a new story and a new setup and new characters every time they don't do those sort of long season arcs where you get a half an hour gobbit yeah which is a you know which is a which you can do you can treat it more like a soap then can't you because you don't need to do all your establishment You've of got, your characters every well, the thing that they start. used to do at first is you had the the they they filmed them in blocks so you had rose aliens of london world war so you basically had all of the ones which were on earth all of the ones which were in the the far future which allowed them to have those sort of uh running stories i am reasonably optimistic about chibnall i think because although his episodes have been universally boring... Which ones are his episodes, then? Remind me. Uh, the one with the, the, the Silurian two-parter. Uh, I'm going to say Battlefield Earth, but that is very much a different thing. Yeah, the one the with Hungry the Earth. The Hungry Earth. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the one which, with... is, which is possibly the worst thing they've done since the show came out. Um, Love and Monsters. I submit for the defence, Love and Monsters. Love and Monsters is great, and we'll have that conversation. I don't think he Silurian... says at the end he's going to have oral sex with a paving slab. That's the that's the happy payoff. This, but this is the genius of Russell T. Davis. He managed to get a joke about having oral sex with a paving slab into a kids' TV programme. How do you do that? Um, the man, I mean, much worse than a space whale. Man's a hero. I think... I don't. I don't even think the Silurian two part is the worst Chris Chibnall episode. I thought forty two, which is that one in the space station and with the one going yeah, burn with time. me, and it's just like how have you managed to make a burning spaceship and a creepy mast figure boring? Well, that was sort of sunshine, wasn't it? That one. I mean, sunshine's up, pretty boring as well. That um, was um, that was the that was the problem is they they remembered at the time they found out at the time that they I think they'd already got that episode written and then they found out that sunshine was coming out and they were like oh this is uncomfortable that this is the same concept oh Doctor Who's always ripped things but, off that's fine I know I think they developed it genuinely independently it was just one of those things that was an idea whose time had come but and also I think Doctor Who is often its best when it's written by jobbing hacks I mean even Russell. T. Davis, who I think is one of television's great uh, modern-day writers and is, you know, a huge Doctor Who fan, is also a jobbing hack. And I think that that is part of... Because um, I also think Doctor Who, in the latter years of the Moffat thing, suffered from the fact that he was doing Sherlock, he was doing Doctor Who, two shows which I think both got worse as he was doing both of them. I also think that Stephen Moffat is a writer who came of age in a slightly different era. I think that's what he struggled with. I mean, in a way, RTD, he was a, he was a pre... He was a harbinger of the kind of Twitter era, right? Because like, Twitter would love RTD episodes if they came out now because they would seem you know they would seem really kind of like great and celebratory and progressive whereas actually Stephen Moffat kind of is a, almost a throwback to 90s kind of ladette sort of TFI fright he feels very much to me in a way it part is a lot like the Labour culture. Party oh god uh, no Stephen it is no 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 this this one is this one is good um in the Russell T Davis came back he was slightly iconoclastic uh, there was a great gay rights agenda. He irritated a lot of the party faithful. He was Tony Blair. Mm-hmm. And you had this growly Scotsman who would do this big set piece event every year 
the Moffat episode, which would be more like This is one of your better, this is like the Labour Traditional Party. Doctor Who. Uh-huh. And people would go, oh, wouldn't it be brilliant if the Growly Scotsman took over? And then the Growly Scotsman actually irritated people by one, not junking as much of the Russell T. Davis agenda as people hoped they would, while still throwing in slightly more from the past, you know, Zygons, Silurians, more continuity references, you know, going back to Gallifrey, all of that sort of thing but it hasn't quite worked as well but the difference is is whereas the 2010 election sort of came along and kind of brought that era to a close the american money's come in and so uh, now the grumpy scotsman is is very successful the question is will chris chibnall be a kind jeremy of corbyn, corbyn or will he be ed Miliband? yeah which of those is meant to be the good option? Don't actually answer that. I think that if if the Russell T. Davis era was happening now, I think it probably would have got exactly the same. Not exactly the same, but it, it would have got a lot of social media hate. I really think a lot of the difference is just that there was less social media then and the world changed slightly since then. But I, just, I don't think yeah, it's... Yeah, I think it's about the, it's about the narrative. It on live always, yeah, I, but, but that was very much the kind of, you know, the respectable left-wing opinion was that this was great because we were really upsetting the Daily Mail by having men kissing on, at prime time. And I think that would have kind of got you a lot of points that, that, that were no longer available by the time Stephen Moffat but, but came also along. But I think also, like, Doctor Who has always changed completely every three or four years when it's been on television. Um, and every time it does that, it's lost people. And, some you know, some, sometimes it's people have just grown out of it. It's we, we are weird and we're all sat around here enthusiastically talking about Doctor Who. We, we are probably all a bit old for this. A lot of people just get to a point that they, they grow out of it. Yeah, and that's nine. normal. They're, they're yeah. nine years old but, and then they just go, I'll probably leave But it. I do think that the best eras of Doctor Who are ones where there are strong companion figures. Um, you know, so I mean, for me, the ultimate compare contrast is, um, oh God, what's the one where, last, is it Last of the Time Lords? Journeys, what, the last um, David Tennant episode. Where he turns into the tiny shrunken shrunken David no, Tennant the one, in the cage the, the, one where, the, the, big, the big superhero team up is, is Journey's End no I mean the one way, uh, where Wilf knocks four times and he has to go into the that's the end of time yeah. the end of time god you're rubbish at this and um, he does his lap of honour that's but, that, that was a bit cheesy but ultimately it? If, if, it takes if, 20 minutes if the doctor <laughs> had to sacrifice himself <laughs> but you know the, the Wilf had you know a family he had Donna who was a full-fledged character even uh, Donna's husband kind of in those few scenes you had a sense of who he was and compare the Christmas episode where um, Matt Smith dies um, the time of the Doctor the time of the Doctor yes. I don't yeah. even um, really remember Matt Smith dying and, uh, it took me a moment to summon up the image of what that was like and there which was is that, not a bad that you know. Christmas thing and it was this family I remember thinking imagine how moving this scene would be if I cared about Clara's personality cared about who Clara's family members were or and indeed could identify any of them was that almost trapped on the planet that uh, was like winter all the time yeah, and it was got, called Christmas and implausibly still had crop growth yeah, yeah, that was quite annoying. Again, I feel you're focusing on the wrong thing in terms <laughs> of the realism of Doctor Who here. Okay, I'm going to put in a word of defence for Chris Chibnall, which is that Broadchurch Season 1 is excellent. Broadchurch Season 2 I gave up on, but... Broadchurch Season 1 was quite good. It was, I think it's the best thing he's done, but it is still... It allowed someone with a proper West Country accent onto TV, and there is, in some ways, the greatest prejudice against one, people One thing with he does seem accents. to be very good at is casting... Like, Broad, mm. Broadchurch is an incredibly well-cast show, so that bodes well. And my instinct is, and the good thing is, because he's not a megastar in the way that Moffat, Ala Gordon Brown, arrived, you know, master of all he surveyed, people couldn't really say no to him. The good thing is, is it's a golden goose for the BBC. I think then they will 
Trib Chibnall will be quite a regulated head writer, and I think that might actually be quite. Good I think for he's the show. in a lucky situation, which is that Chris Chibnall says X is not as big a headline as Stephen Moffat says X. But Stephen Moffat says X wasn't that big a headline before Stephen Moffat was running Doctor Who. I think that's the job creates the man to a certain extent. So mm, I, th- I would have thought then, if, if he's got any sense, he will stay as far in the background as possible. But I think part of the job is is being the sort of public face, isn't it? So it's like there is an extent to which if Chris Chibnall isn't getting headlines, that probably means Doctor Who isn't getting headlines. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, it's like if you look at, say, Terence Dix's pre-Doctor Who career, it was not that inspiring, and he produced possibly some of the best Doctor Who in its uh, history. And once again, that was a period when the BBC was, you know, actually, you know, regulating it quite toughly, and they were forced to be exiled to Earth, you know, lots of much violence, etc., etc. Um, I think probably... Uh, we, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing that some listeners by now will be thinking. You still think there are listeners? <laughs> wow, these people need, and you know, these people there, need therapy. There, there are two but, big Doctor Who fans who are still listening, and they're even now writing angry emails about some factual error. We yeah, which is John, about. which is spelled J O double N dot Elledge at. Um, uh, but thank you again for joining us, John. I, I like the eclectic range of subjects that we get you in to talk about. You know, from sieges to head writers on Doctor Who. Um, people are still having the what's the biggest, what's the greatest siege in history conversation on Twitter. We seem to have started a meme. And so I really nice. didn't realise that you'd ripped it off from Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. I genuinely didn't know I had. I'm slightly despairing about that because that's, that's an insight into my own personality I really didn't want. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back next week for another adventure in time and space. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.